Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. But talk can be enlightening. It's very rarely frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Nerdist Writers Series at Meltdown Comics to benefit A26LA. How about a round of applause? It is an informal chat about television and the business of writing for television. Um, my name is Ben Blacker. I'm the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour, a stage show in the style of old-time radio. For more information, go to thrillingadventurehour.com. I'm also a writer on the CW series Supernatural. Uh, we have a terrific lineup for you today. First up, our first panelist. Uh, his early credits include Clarissa Explains It All. <laughs> Uh, he joined Buffy the Vampire Slayer in its third season and stayed with it until becoming co-executive producer, as well as directing a few episodes. Uh, his other writing credits include Angel, The 4400, CSI, and Pushing Daisies. Please welcome Doug Petrie. Hi, Doug. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank Say you hello. For having us. Hello. Hello. Look at all you. Next up, <laughs> let's get everyone out. Let's Next up, uh, also early credits including Clarissa Explains It All. <laughs> she went on to join the new series at the time, Friends, uh, where her first credited episode is the one with George Stephanopoulos. Uh, she left the series in season five as a co-executive producer and went on to write for series such as Once and Again, Sex and the City, The West Wing, uh, where she was nominated twice for Emmys and for WGA Awards. Most recently, she was the first season showrunner for Showtime's United States of Terra, and she's currently at work on several pilots for broadcasting cable networks. Please welcome Alexa Young. Welcome, Alexa. Thanks. Thanks for being here. Thanks. Hi, Doug. <laughs> Have you two met? Yeah. All right. No. That's right, folks. If you get on this panel, it could be a love connection. <laughs> uh, our next panelist is an acclaimed screenwriter whose credited work include The Black Dahlia and Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds. His, he writes a terrific writing blog called I Find Your Lack of Faith Disturbing, uh, which is worth checking out if you haven't already, especially even if you just check in, read his uh, entry on Snakes on a Plane. It's <laughs> terrific. Uh, he's the developer and co -crea uh, the creator, I guess, of the uh, two-season series, The Sarah Connor Chronicles, and he recently adapted for television the comic book Lock and Key. Uh, please welcome Josh Friedman. Uh, and finally, uh, our final panelist, uh, his TV credits include uh, the Rob Thomas series Cupid and Snoops, as well as Smallville, Everwood, and Heroes. He created the ambitious 2009 series Kings for NBC, uh, which is a really interesting series. It's worth checking out. I'm, I'm sure it's on DVD. Um, he wrote one of the best, my absolute favorite pilot from this past year uh, called The River. He's also one of the credited writers on this summer's Green Lantern film. Please welcome Michael Green. Uh, 
thank you for mentioning Snoops. <laughs> Snoops is a really fun show. Was it not fun to work on? <laughs> uh, it, Charlie's Angels will be a lot more fun to watch. Uh, gotcha. <laughs> uh, while we're on the topic, you know, you guys are all, um, as of now, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, are you all... Uh, Traveling gunman, do you do any of you? Are you any of you on the series this fall? Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. Uh, well, let's talk to you two because <laughs> the river we know is going. Uh, before we get into all of the how I got where I am stuff, tell us about this most recent development se uh, season. How was it for you? What happened? How is it? Uh, how does it exemplify the development season or the uh, the fall? The you know the pickup season for you? How is it different? Um, I, I, I'll talk about the river uh, probably is a great example of how everything you expect it's supposed to be doesn't work anymore and the entire network system has fallen apart and every show is sort of its own weird adventure. Um, I'll try to do it in 90 seconds. It might go long. Um, I was uh, working on, I took some time to do feature stuff. Uh, I just handed in a draft of The Flash, which I'm writing with the same guys I did Green Lantern with. And... Um, uh, I got a call from ABC saying, hey, we have a pilot we really like, but it didn't come in right. Uh, we really like the idea. Could you take a crack at it? And I said, well, I have eight days between when I hand this thing in and when they're going to ask me to do another pass at it. Do you mind if I just did it what I can in eight days and get it back to you? And they said, sure, 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 because it ends up, and this is where it's all bananas, and you're probably not supposed to talk about this in the <laughs> microphone in front of you, but um, they have a huge penalty against it if they don't film it. So they do this cost-benefit analysis of we can give them X number of dollars to try to fix something that's not working for us in exchange for not having to pay this huge penalty if we don't go with it. So I take a crack at it, mess it up, uh, hand it in, they want to shoot it, and then they come back and say, would you want to produce it? And uh, it... it Strange things happen. Strange things happen. I end up actually in Puerto Rico producing this show. Um, I, I uh, you know, worked out my schedule, and um, then uh, the can I say bad words on there? Yeah. Then the fuckers pick it up. <laughs> um, and uh, no, it was great. We had a wonderful time. It was actually a weird thing where uh, it was a very unconventional show. It's a horror show done for network. They said uh, I said when they asked me if I wanted to rewrite it, I said. Uh, I have to ask you a few questions first. Like, would you actually let it be scary? And they said, absolutely scare as you want, as long as we care about the characters. And I was like, oh, that's actually one of those. And it was one of those moments where they're like, we don't know what works. We just want you to do what your instincts are. So please help us by making this good. And it's the same thing. Like, these aren't things. Supposed to, and so I kept saying, well, what if we did this interesting thing? And they said, absolutely try it. And every stupid idea I had, they were like, just try it if you believe in it. And the same thing went through up until shooting. And it was... Um, when the rare situations where ABC Studio and Network were uh, incredibly supportive of of the most aggressive version of the show, and so we made something we're actually really proud of. Uh, and it's not cheerleading. I, I'm not rel related to any of them. I'm my brother-in-law. You know, um, I don't have a deal with them, so I can talk shit about them if I didn't like them. But um, uh, it, we just happened to get their support. So uh, it was a very, very unconventional thing. Usually, you pitch these things way back in like summer. I came into it in first, second week of January. Wow. Interesting. Uh, Josh, how was your experience this year? <laughs> I mean, in some ways I had the exact same experience as he did, minus the part where I got the show picked up. <laughs> um, and I was on it in the middle of summer. Um, you know, I was hired to do Lock and Key. Uh, Crispin Orsi actually had it on the feature side uh, with DreamWorks, and then they decided it was a TV show because uh, Bob and Alex were going to write it with DreamWorks, and then they all decided it was a TV show. And um, so DreamWorks TV and Kurtz Morrissey got together. They hired me, and um, it feels a little boomy. Um, so 
I wrote the script, uh, and and I was. It, I mean, interestingly, I had a very long conversation with Kevin Riley, the president of Fox, because it's. I mean, if you've read Lock and Key or though you haven't, it's a really intense uh, comic book. I mean, it's it's there's um, it's very scary, it's very emotional, it's very violent, uh, and it involves children. And 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 I, I said, do you really want to make this? Is this really what you want us to do? Because it's intense. And 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 he said, I and he literally said, I want you to swing for the fences. I want you to do every single thing you can do to make it as intense and scary as possible and make it emotional. I mean, it was like I had the same speech. And I said, can I record you saying this? <laughs> and, and he said, absolutely. I mean, I there I made sure there was I, other people on the phone when he was telling me this. And I said, I'm going to come back to you six months from now when you tell me it's too emotional and too scary and all these things. That this is what you said. He goes, no, 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 absolutely. Just you know, we love this and blah blah blah. I don't even think I need to tell you the rest of the story. Um, <laughs> uh, cut to about a month ago, and I was on the phone with Kevin Riley, and he said, I don't know, it's so intense. <laughs> and I said, uh huh. He said, I mean, it's really emotional. I mean, it's gut wrenching. I said, well, you know. Dad gets murdered and there's a kid in a well. I mean, it's not fucking Lassie, you know? And and he said, I just, I said, are you actually saying to me that I perhaps did my job too well? And he said, kind of. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So, um, yeah, it's a very inspirational story. Um, uh, yeah. And it really, like, it, it's a great script. We talked about this earlier. Not it's, as good as The River, which is your favorite. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing came close to it. <laughs> uh, no, it's sincerely here. a terrific script. There were only a handful of really great ones this year. and Yours was one of them. And I'm, I was saying to Josh earlier, I'm so mad I won't get to see episode two, at least as of now. Yeah, it's still. Um, you know, Your first have, cut was like four hours long, so you could just show them that and call it. A- I could, by the way. We had a sixty-seven minute long director's cut. Um, so, I mean, that's basically it. it's. It's still sort of um, you know, the Sci-Fi Network is kind of uh, stalking it a little bit, but I, I believe when I see it. That's the. <laughs> so, what do you do with yourself? You know, you're a writer who has credits to his name, and now you here you are, sort of in limbo. I eat uncontrollably, um, right? I mean, what else do you do? I eat uncontrollably. I follow my wife around the house as if she's got something for me to do until she has something for me to do, and then I leave. Um, I, what, what else do you do? I mean, I avoid my seven-year-old. I mean, I, I, it's the same things that one does at home. Um, you know, you write. You try to write stuff, and um, I'm talking to – I mean, I had a great experience with 20th. Talking to them about doing a deal, they um, want me to stick around and develop this year. But when you develop, that means you for twentieth, you also then have to. And for most places now, I mean, it's it's um, a lot of those deals now. You have to actually be on a show. They don't want you just to sit around and develop and cash their checks. And um, so, I mean, I may end up, you know, next week I may be on a show. I, I mean, I, I've never been on a show. So only your own. Hmm? Only your own. The only show I've ever, only writers room I've ever been in was the one that I ran. Yeah, <laughs> it's not bad. No, it's a good it's uh, downhill. Alexa, what's what's your position going into this fall season? Where were you three months ago, and where are you now, and what are you um, looking forward to? Well, I guess three months ago, I was following my husband around, hoping he would give me something to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you'd leave. Yeah, yeah. I know. When I did. I know. But then we would both leave, so <laughs> we were both looking for the other person to do that. Um, I, I, I was working on an HBO series that I was really um, enjoying that didn't go, at I guess, in fe- February or March. And so 
Um, so I, in the interim, I did a deal um, with NBC because Bob Greenblatt, who's there, was used to run Showtime and. He's one of the few people that I can actually email that runs a network. So I like him. So um, so I just did a deal there. And so I'm going, I'm running a show, a little mid-season show called BFF in the fall. And then I'm going on this show called Free Agents, which is Hank Azaria and yeah. Catherine Hahn. And Bomb's show. Yeah. 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 He was here yeah. a couple months yeah, ago. Yeah. That's great. great. He's yeah. great. So yes. So, and then I'll develop, I guess, next year. But I'm going to wait a year. So. That's good. That's the plan. That's good. And you're happy with the plan? Yeah, I'm really happy. They kind of let me do whatever I wanted, which was really nice. Like, there were shows that I um, wasn't as excited about. And ordinarily, in the past, my experience would be like, we're doing a deal with you. Suck it up and mm-hmm. go run that show. And this was much more like, well, whatever feels good and where you'd feel a good creative fit. So it was, um, I feel very lucky right now. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and Doug, what happened to you? What happened to me? Well, um, actually, I thought you were going to tell the story. Um, back in December, uh, I'd been in uh, Movie World for mm-hmm. the last two years. I've been writing features, and maybe it's the same for you guys. I, I want to find out. Um, these were movies that I was developing, uh, writing to direct, which is kind of uh, a much bigger piece of cheese that you can you know, bait the rat with, and you'll just go, <laughs> me being the rat, and I'll just go forever. Um, and screenwriting, I'll just put it out there, is like a really lonely endeavor uh, compared to uh, TV writing. And the downside may be that you love movies so much that you'll put up with it. And I love movies so much that I'll put up with it because I love movies. Um, but two years was quite a lot. And um, uh, Alexa and I, last December, we'd kind of reached the end of our ropes. I'd been rewriting this, these movies over and over and over again. And uh, there was no TV in sight. She didn't know what she was doing. She was being kind of ground down, and we looked at each other, and it was that day. Do you remember that day in December where it was actually, like, raining so hard? It was raining sideways, you know, <laughs> out the window. And, you know, it's like the Wicked Witch go fly by and laugh at you, you know. And um, we have these friends who, when they got married, they, they have a, a, a slogan for every year. Like, their mother was too much in their business, so they were like, Boundaries 06 was their motto <laughs> for the year. And we looked at each other, and Alexa had pneumonia because she'd been working so hard, and our kid was, like, hyperactive and, like, running around the house, like, you know, angry birds, angry birds, like, <laughs> kill the birds and sun, kill them all. You know, it's like, you're talking to Jack Nicholson in The Shining, and, um, uh, and she's not arguing. And um, uh, so we looked at each other and said, we need a slogan. We need a slogan for 2011. And we were just like, no more fucking around. And like, that's the slogan. No more fucking around. <laughs> and I said, I'm going to have patches made. And she said, oh, wait, oh that's wait, so... That, yes. Sorry. Th- that's going to happen with us. Um, I'm a collaborating, lot. not interrupting, by the way, for yeah. all you women. That this are... is a gender thing. Yes. Okay. The guy I'm collaborating. Says, she fucking interrupted me. She's like, I was helping. I'm helping. But um, what I wanted to say is that we couldn't start our new year in January until March because we had all this stuff we had to finish. So this was like our our motto is going to be no more fucking around 2011, but it would have to start March 1st. So, right. so you guys Which have like more... a no fucking around fiscal year? I think it's a different thing. Exactly. We're felt so bad it's like so we're sitting we're like drawing a line in the sand with you know god and reality it's like but can we wait a couple of months before we really start anyway i said i'm gonna make patches and she said oh like iron on patches i was like no that's fucking around i want patches that you can sew into your clothing and here you'll say oh my god no more fucking around 2011 i wear this on my it, it is a patriotic patch it says nmfa it kind of looks good and kind of 2011 boy, yeah, yeah very boy scouts of america might, so you can get away a little with it. that's hilarious it's a, oh, we all want in it's oh. a, Everybody wants one. So does no more fucking around mean I'm so tired of writing features that I'm going to go back to TV? It, as a matter of fact, it did. Yes. Yeah. In that case. It it define may, not fucking around. 
Great, great question. Um, we have time for because one because I am constantly <laughs> fucking around and I need to know how to stop. Yeah, it's um, patch. It actually, patch. it actually. You guys are getting patches, by the way. It actually um, affects everything. Where in your interactions, you just say what you most need and want to say, and lo and behold, the world starts to respond in kind, whether they want to or not. And this kind of candor kind of creates a little, uh, it's, it's a little bit of a Jedi mind trick, but it, <laughs> but it works, it works most of the time, unless Alexa says No, it what I was going to say is that in, in Hollywood, it's really important that you're someone that people want to work with, and I think a lot of the stuff that we deal with is trying to figure out how to do what you want and be who you want to be, but also not be, you know, let, not be so out there with your wants and needs that you become a difficult person. And so I think some of this was our response to years and years of of really trying to be collaborative and really trying so it was like how can we how can we do more of what we need and not just feel like doormats or sort of beaten down by having to you know keep everybody happy and also like make ourselves happy in the process yes it doesn't mean be a jerk it just means you know be be polite uh, and also for me it was kind of like in terms of movies versus tv it was like this kind of magical green light that they keep floating in front of you in features which you really really believe in and sometimes you go like okay i, I think you're messing around with me and they go no no you really must believe and you feel like there's some like tribal thing like when you say you know i don't think the studio is actually going to green light this it's like you you've peed on the ceremonial fire in front of the Natives. Ah, you can't say that. So it's you got to be very careful. So for me, it was just kind of like, okay, we're going to do this, or we're going to do something else. Right. So it was really about, as opposed to movies versus TV, it was just about clarity. Yeah. I find the secret to getting what you want is to declare it. Like I've started just – someone once told me the way to become a director from being a writer is to start telling people I'm a director. And it just suddenly becomes true because you've declared it so, not because like you put it out to the universe or some hooey shit. It's more people respond to it in kind and start talking to you in that way. And, yes. you know, same thing when you're trying to determine like what are your boundaries in TV uh, or features for that matter. It's, you know, sometimes saying, well, I can do that, but under these conditions, I'm sorry if I'm not the guy. Uh, you know, I can recommend someone who might be, and then you suddenly, I find that as soon as you say, I might not be the guy for this job, suddenly they have to have you for this job, yeah. and you know, well, under that, your that, terms. Yeah, the, the story. I'm only available for eight days. And they're like, we got to get the guy. He's only available for only eight available days. For so get on the phone. Get him on the phone right now. You know. So. Uh, absolutely, uh, th there's a lot to that, and uh, I'm sure it'll come up. It'll be a theme in this episode. Um, <laughs> let's step back because before you could be bold and confident in your uh, how, how to behave in your career choices. Uh, there are times when you don't have a choice. Uh, how, let's talk about how each of you got into the business, how each of you became a working writer. Um, and Josh, we haven't heard from you in a while. Let's start with you. I was, I was trying to find my zen, my zen place because I'm on the opposite path of them. I was, I'm going to, I'm going to really fuck around for the next year. <laughs> you need a different patch. Well, the crazy thing is, is we all like, it's amazing that they have a patch. I actually started referring to myself in the third person in the last pilot season as a way to work on my biggest problem, which was that I was a fucking asshole. And, uh, this will not answer your question, but it relates to this, which is on Sarah Connor, I was a horrible, uh, person. Uh, not to any writer or anyone in the building that I work with, but I hate people who pay me, uh, which is a bad <laughs> way to go through your career. And I've been going through my career for a long time, and I, at the end of, and I had a really hard time, as we call it, managing up uh, yeah. on Sarah Connor, and I was incredibly 
argumentative would suggest that I allowed an argument to happen. Um, I was a dickhead. And uh, when I got hired uh, to do Lock and Key, it was with Fox, and the Fox people had remembered me. And uh, the Warner Brothers people, actually, I, I'm in Warner Brothers jail. I've been in there for two years now. I think they forgot about me. I think I'm in Warner Brothers Guantanamo. Is actually where I am. <laughs> they will not work with me uh, and haven't for a couple of years because I was. They've said that we need a timeout. Um, and when I got hired to do Lock and Key, they called me and they said, "We will hire you, but you need to agree to be nice." And I said, "Okay, <laughs> I will be nice." And I said, "And I, I said, you know, there's a new person. It's Josh 2.0, and uh, Josh 1.0 was an ass. And Josh 2.0 will go down the hallways and apologize to all the people at Fox that he um, made cry." And uh, so I did that, and I actually started referring to myself. So this was my thing: was this for the patch? I referred to myself as Josh 2.0. For eight months. And um, in the hopes that I would actually believe it. This is your next sitcom, by the this way. Is, <laughs> this is, was an asshole. Was an asshole, now a good guy. And, and so much so that the executives started referring to me. They're like, oh, Josh 2.0 was really good in that meeting today. <laughs> like, we know we saw Josh 2.0 get a little white knuckle, but we, we really appreciate Josh 2.0's work. I mean, you know, could I have the number of your therapist? Like, kind of stuff. And I, I would apologize and whatever. But um, because... Which one's more effective, effective at getting your way? Well, I was this one. Uh, Josh 2.0, we'll just say Josh 2.0 will have a deal at 20th, whereas Josh 1.0 was basically barred from working at Warner Brothers after Sarah Connor. Which is, I mean, it's, it's different than what they're doing, but I, I mean, it, it, there, is, there is a balance. And, and I think it's the, when you're a working writer, there is a balance between doing what you want to do, getting what you want, and getting and being able to continue to work and be someone who people want to work with. And finding that that balance between saying what you mean and doing it right and and not being a complete and utter ass about it. Did you did you find that the previous Josh, because uh, you come from features, did you find that the previous Josh got in the way during those processes? Or did that just kind of, did he rear his head on Sarah Connor? Well, I, I think that because I came from the feature world, you, I'd been had the shit kicked out of me for 15 years in the feature world, hmm. and so when I got into the TV world, I was just drunk with power. <laughs> I mean, it was just like, what do you mean? Did I you define sh- uh, like shit beat out of you in features? Like what? Yeah. Well, I mean, just I mean, in the sense of you know, hand in a script, don't hear from someone for two months, or you know, get notes or have stuff just die in the vine. I mean, anything that is basically what it is to be a screenwriter, but for about 12 screenwriters who have relationships with directors who make the things that they want, or are the directors themselves, you know, and and and, and I think that – but that was how I functioned. And when I got into TV, I came with a very big chip on my shoulder, and I just thought everyone was out to fuck me. And, and they were. I mean, don't – I mean, they were. I was not wrong. But, uh, but I just didn't handle it. You know, I don't think that I um, – you know, I didn't know how to deal with that on a daily basis. And I think the difference in TV, in features, you can be a little more quirky and difficult sometimes because you only have to talk to them about three times a year. And so it allows for a wider range of behavior and personality as a screenwriter. But when you're in TV, you're management. You're your own kind of management, and it's like bordering nation states. Like you can't – it's Israel and Palestine. Like, oh, there is no Palestine. But, yeah, um, you know, it's – you can't 
be an asshole because you have to talk to them five times a day for and they're the ones in charge of you know you have to go to them every time you need something and and so you have to find a way to work with them which and I just didn't want to so we'll, and we'll get back yeah. to so anyway that process too I went to USC film school <laughs> <laughs> did you I, 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 gotta, I tell that story I got to make up the other one I, I was going to move on <laughs> I was going to move on we were yeah. getting into therapy it was oh, fine okay. um, well I may as well follow up now. I may as well follow up now. Did you uh, did you write something at film school that kind of got attention? How did you get your first agent? How did you get your first script well, it's, deal? It's actually like kind of fascinating. The first script that I ever wrote uh, in screenwriting class at USC was optioned by Propaganda Films back when they had all these amazing directors back in the 90s with David Fincher and Mark Romanek and Spike Jones and and... I can't even Tarsat. Like it was a list that's incredible. And Mark Romanek was attached to my very first script that I ever wrote, um, which was this weird little prison drama that I wrote in school as my first script. And it was so it was my first script that I didn't even know. I was so afraid to write exteriors that I wrote a prison movie. That, and I didn't even. It was about the last two hours of a guy's life before he was electrocuted. And it was literally like a guy in a cell, a guy in a cell, a guy in a cell. And when I could never have more than two characters talking to each other because I was like I couldn't figure it out. Um, so he was attached to it, and interestingly, he's the guy who directed my pilot this year, you know, 17 years later or something like that. Um, so, yeah, I wrote something in film, in film school and got optioned and got an agent and, you know. All right. Uh, I'm going to come over here because it seems uh, Alexa and Doug, we talked about both of you, early credits on Clarissa Explains It All, so it seems like you, you guys sort of came up together. Uh, give us a little bit of, of your background and how you got into writing and, how, you know, how you, how you paid your dues. And we'll let you tell it in tandem. Um, okay. Okay. Go. Yeah. Okay, so I wanted to write since I was a kid. Like, right, Dad? Kind of. <laughs> That's my dad. Hi, Dad. Um, um, oh, we'll go to him I, for I, the I fact check. I talked about that guy, and I'm like, that is not right. <laughs> oh, no. And my dad's... Um, uh, ironically, name is also Doug, so that's kind of um, no Freudian significance whatsoever. Issues there. We, you did not just realize that. Now. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but anyway, um, so I got interested. I think when I was around ten or eleven, and if you've heard my This American Life story, there's a whole. You can hear that. It's all about that. Um, but um, and then I went to New York because I was interested in theater. So I went to college in New York and grad school. So I was primarily interested in playwriting. And then um, I guess I got my first job on this Nickelodeon show before Nickelodeon was union. So it was, you know, like very low money, but it was a um, paid writing gig. And I got it through a friend who I had worked for as his assistant on a one act play festival kind of thing. Um, And then, um, yeah, so that was my first paid job and it was really miserable. I was in um, Orlando by myself with this really difficult boss and um and actually this is where i'll segue into your story a little bit um sorry go ahead okay collaborating okay um so i second season i was there the guy was horrible and i was i just walked around looking for things with cheese to eat and it was so depressing which is really easy to find in orlando yeah but not enough sadly but anyway so and um so somewhere in the first season of this misery um the line producer who was now a really she's a great friend but um anyway she handed me a script of a spec and said I this friend of mine wrote the spec and maybe we'll get to hire some writers and I read it and it was 
awesome. And I was like, well, whoever wrote this is really talented and wonder if he's single. Um, so anyway, that's how we met. Um, <laughs> through a script, ironically. Um, so, and then I left and he came on. But, um, and, but then I, so I was in, then the show went union while I was there. So I was in the guild. I had this super fancy theater agent in New York and I moved out to LA thinking like, oh, I'll just, you know, and I had specs and oh, I went to grad school too. So I was, you know, I thought I was like sort of, I didn't realize that I had years of dues paying to come, but I came out here and, um, you know, basically like went broke and wrote questions for a game show and I had to crawl under, on the, under the stage and connect a cable and work the scoreboard and it was non-union and so I had to use a fake name and um, and then I just, I, I forget exactly how it happened but I was just um, pretty miserable and, and all my friends, a lot of people I knew were working and I couldn't get any of the agents that whose represented, whose writers I hired while I was on Clarissa to even hip pocket me like halfway through one of the hiring seasons this guy was like I have to tell you I really don't like your writing at all it's, I just don't like it and so I was so it kind of enraged me into making some calls to people to ask for help that I'd been too shy to ask for help from and one of them said let me see if I can help you and he called a couple of agencies and um this crazy woman who had been in the um mailroom at Triad, I'm dating myself, um, was interested. And then as soon as they were interested, other agencies wanted to hire me, you know, wanted to sign me. Um, but I had all a lot of specs and I had experience and da da da. But even then it took me another year and a half. So, um, but she's still my agent too, which is kind of amazing. Yeah. So I've only had one. So, so it seems like you've also had a couple of breaks for yourself too in that time. You know, there was the the Nickelodeon break, which was great experience. Yes, I mean, totally. it must have been miserable as it was. Totally, uh, great learning experience. And mm -hmm. then, what was what was the next thing after that? After you found this agent, was well, it just the the staffing, or it were you, was? Uh, yeah, I mean, she helped me get into the pile so that I could then be you know considered for um, network jobs. And so my first network job was really, um, which was on a kind of forgettable sitcom, but that was when I sort of was in the pool. Um, and, and then it, that went down, and then I think I got friends the next year. So um, That's great. Yeah. And, Doug, how do you fit into this? Um, let's see. I, I think I was always a writer but didn't know it. Um, when I was growing up, I was obsessed with Marvel Comics. I would draw constantly, something that I'm just getting back to. And just like unsolicited advice, I would say that to this day, the thing that keeps coming back to me is do something in addition to or along with writing because writing is um, – arduous in and of itself, especially when you're doing solitary writing. So, you know, uh, photograph, uh, you know, uh, film, act, draw, whatever it is. I, I keep reminding myself that all the time. So I would draw all the time and talk about dating yourself. I, I think in retrospect, I knew as a writer when like the ABC Sunday night movie was Diamonds Are Forever, I would tape record a James Bond movie and then transcribe it, you know, because uh, you just had to own the James Bond movie in some way. And then you'd read it and you're like, oh, that's, wow, that's a witty exchange. Or, oh, that's dirty, you know, or whatever. Um, <laughs> Um, and uh, did a lot of acting in high school and kind of met my people, my best friends to this day are the guys I met in, in high school. And, and we did acting again and kind of retroactive, like seeing yourself as a writer. Uh, I remember the night they were all excited because like the producers is on TV tonight. And I was like, what's the producers? You know, so I, I wasn't a Jew yet. Um, and they were like, oh, that's adorable. Watch the producers. And like we just quoted the producers for the next six months. Like just every word that came out of our mouths was, you know, a line from the producers. So you kind of realized that you were 
the, the, the kind of uh, totemic power of writing, that you could create something, you could, you know, draw these symbols on a page, someone else could see those symbols, reenact them, and get a laugh, and kind of how amazing that, and, and incredibly powerful that process was. Uh, and then in college, I had a wonderful, um, it was a wonderful playwriting program at the College of William and Mary, where uh, they didn't have a great theater department, but they had this one great program where you would write one-act plays, and the following semester, some of the plays would get selected and performed. And so I wrote kind of a faux Twilight Zone episode that got performed, and you kind of went, whoa, you know, it was the first time you saw, even in its cheesiest form, you know, genre come to life, and people actually doing it, and I was just hooked from then on in, and then... uh, kind of always bounced back and forth between never really had a, a, a what do they call it, a wheelhouse, you know. I, like, I love genre. I love comedy. I don't see them as mutually exclusive. Um, you just kind of write what you love. And the script that Alexa read was, was living in a very crappy apartment on West 56th Street. Somebody said, that's not an apartment. That's Brad Davis's cell from Midnight Express. You know? <laughs> it's kind of true. And, um, you know, exposed brick walls. It's like, it's a brick wall. This is terrible. Um, and wrote a, this is really dating myself, but it was Parker Lewis Can't Lose was this I show. I that, that show. Yeah. <laughs> it was this great, great, great show. And I think that the thing that kind of invited me to it was not industry norms. You know, you wouldn't have written at, at the time, you know, write a Cosby or write, write something popular. And I was like, but this show is so fucking funny and it really speaks to me and it's crying out to have this kind of specificity and wrote it and was told by an agent, you will never get anything out of this. And I got my first union job and my wife and son out of it. So, um, <laughs> So fuck you, Agent Man. So, yeah. <laughs> fuck the man. This is Doug 1.0. Fuck you. <laughs> Wear the patch, my friend. <laughs> and you're still with that agent. I'm, and uh, actually, that agent is still around. Yeah. yeah. So there you go. Uh, Michael, let's move down to you. Uh, tell us your background, where the writing came you know, it's from. It's funny because you get asked this question a lot, and I've gotten so sick of hearing myself tell my story that I've actually started R&Ding the better answer to this question. <laughs> I haven't tried it yet, so I'm going to try it. Guys, weigh in. Um, this is because what you'll find everyone. is all the, all the writers, uh, and these guys much more than myself, have uh, charming abilities to describe themselves charmingly, and my backstory isn't that interesting. Um, but what I get is always the question under it is, how can I replicate what you did so that I can get a job and replace you, which is what you guys should do. <laughs> Circle of life, right? Um, right? You're here to eat us. And what you're... What you're yeah. <laughs> By all means, we're delicious. Uh, so we, uh, you're hearing a lot of... Uh, not false, actual modesty from these guys because the thing that's underneath all their stories is there's an alpha moment when every writer who's made it wrote something that changed the course of their direction. Mm-hmm. Um, because as a writer, you, you, you're not one of the decision. You know, there are a lot of people you're waiting to make a decision, like the decision to read your thing, the decision to hire you. So the one thing you can do is write something. And you know, you've all you're all here, so. Obviously, you've written some stuff before. There's a guy writing something right now, and he's like, don't listen to Green. Um, and uh, 
so you can change the course of your things by writing the th and everyone's had that thing where like you've written some specs you've written some specs and then one day you start something and you're like I'm onto something here this is different and you give it to someone and they don't say oh that's really good they say holy shit yeah, yeah. because um, in the world of specs you get you know when you're hiring staffs you get stacks and stacks of them and all of them are good some of them are great but very very few are excellent and I can't think of a single excellent writer I know who isn't working. I know a lot of great writers who aren't working, and I know a lot of great writers who are working. <laughs> um, but do you know a single fucking brilliant writer who isn't working by choice or is so disturbed that they are, like, are in jail for a little bit? <laughs> you were working five minutes ago. You're about to get a deal. Deal is working. A deal is, a deal is working know, at its highest it, point. I know, but that was funny. The highest like, Western society at its pinnacle is being a deal. You're working like a motherfucker. Um, so, uh, so, it's all just how I plan. So th this is a long way to say, like, there is paying your dues, which is all the crappy stuff you have to do uh, until you write something that changes your course or until someone notices that you've written something that changes its course. Um, there's uh, – I'm losing my train of thought. Um, now, what that thing is, I mean, no one can really define that, but you'll know it when it happens. I mean, everyone's just had that moment. And then, you know, luck takes over. Yes, there is a grand deal of can you get the right person at the right time to read this thing. But this is the long way about this. And as I said, this I'm polishing this so that, like, if I ever get to talk to this American life, I'll have something for it. <laughs> you can talk to them anytime you want. Yeah, um, no, uh, it's um, keep writing until you get to that thing. Because when you write that indisputable script, it's going to change the way people perceive you. And it's going to change the way you perceive yourself so you're no longer thinking, gosh, I think I should try this writing thing as opposed to like, oh no, I'm better than 90% of the people I've read. Like, you know, you go and you take that shitty job at an agency and you have all those, which the whole purpose of it is to have access to scripts or any shitty job really is just to have access to scripts so you can read them, absorb them and, you know, and rank yourself among them and get their techniques and sort of deconstruct and, you know, and other paying your dues is like sitting there watching James Bond. I sat there, transcribed a Friends episode, went, there's an A, B, and C story. Yeah. <laughs> I literally sat with a v VCR, like rewinding it, going, wait a minute, and then there's this D runner. What do we call that? A runner. Uh, um, <laughs> and, you know, those are the things you do, but just keep at those things and keep writing until you get to the thing. Uh, because then when you have that script and you show it to an agent, you know, I mean, yes, some schmucks might say no one's going to ever hire you off this, but then someone else is going to marry you off it. Right. And I, every writer I know just has that moment where it just changed. They wrote that thing, and it could have been a play, a spec, or whatever. And sometimes you have to do it again and again. Like, you'll, mm -hmm. like I'll read people, um, like, in terms of what you're talking about, about this sort of pile of eh, like, here, and which a lot of people that I know and I'm friends with are in – and and then somebody will like reinvent themselves. They'll yeah. have an inspiration and write a pilot that you didn't know they had in them, and suddenly like it. Changes and they'll work again. for ten years yeah, off it. Yeah. It'll be a sample of theirs for ten years, and they'll yeah. get on a staff where that pilot will get shot. Mm -hmm. Something will happen, and it just changes the course of things. And it can happen, I think, at any. I mean, I when I thought Lock and Key was going, um, you have to do this thing, which is you think would be you don't want to do, but before your show gets picked up, you have to start interviewing writers for staffing. So which is crazy. Like, which is crazy, but everyone is doing it because the minute the shows get picked up, it's it's like the last five minutes of trading places. It's just like, you know, everything just starts <laughs> happening and you know, so you you know no 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 I got him, I'll get him. Oh no, I fucked, I lost them both. And uh, but it's that frenetic and it can be that frenetic depending on what point in the day on Friday you get picked up or whatever it is and so you're reading people 
basically, and they're trying, I mean, it's a bizarre thing where they're trying to impress you and you don't actually have a show. So they're sitting there nervous to meet someone who can't hire them at that moment, but hoping to, you know, you're hoping to, and it's a, it's fucked up. And I, you know, you spend a lot of money at coffee shops. Um, but what I found, and I have found this, um, kind of every time I've done this, which is I always fall in love with the 25 year old baby writers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They, I, I don't give a fuck about the co-EPs mm -hmm. because most of those scripts are procedural. They're like the guy who was on the procedural for six years and then he his agent said, you got to write a new spec pilot, dude. And he wrote one and it was pretty good, but it wasn't like, but he's already been working. But like, and then you find, I mean, literally there's, there was two or three scripts that I found in this batch of all the scripts and they were 25 years old i mean the people were they were the youngest people they'd done nothing but get an agent and the point was is that script that they had written that i was now reading was the one that had gotten them in the door and it was exciting they put everything they, they put had everything into it, into it. Yeah. and like and and it's weird with my show didn't get picked, i know this is a bizarre thing my show didn't get picked up probably fourth of thought i had of those things was shit i can't hire this person and this person and it was literally a 25 and 27 year old mm -hmm. staff writers mm -hmm. who might not have even written a script in the first, you know, half of the year or anything like that or made a difference to my show. But they were the ones that I sit in my head and I go, the next time I get a show, yeah. those I'm going to find those people. Like, those mm -hmm. are the people I'm going to call and say, what's so-and-so doing? Yeah, I, I have a rule that, like, when you get a show picked up, you have to make room for the, to give some person their first job because someone did it for me. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, and you get these stacks and, like, it's sort of like casting. All these actors come in and they think we're assholes and we just want one of them to not suck. <laughs> it's like you get this huge stack of scripts and you're just waiting for someone to blow you away and you want them to. And then yep, you get that excitement. Like, nothing is better than that person script who, like, you could just tell they gave, they left nothing on there, out of there. Yeah. And is that... Is that so? That's that's get someone in the door. Certainly, uh, then you have to meet with that person. Yeah, then you're just seeing if they're like a social turnip. I mean, there are some scripts that are so good, you're like, unless you have like an oozing carbuncle, right. you have a job on this. Wasn't show. that what Jane Espenson called the 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 yeah. wearing pants? The wearing pants meeting. If yeah. you show up wearing pants, <laughs> you, if you're gonna, you're probably gonna get the yeah. job. You know, I mean, it's like you just want to make sure you're not completely insane. Yeah. Um, Jane. <laughs> Wait till you guys hear that podcast. She's It'll so smart. Probably come up with I know, nice. I know. I'm never hiring her. <laughs> Does anyone else want to talk about Jane Espenson? Yeah. I've never met her. I've loved her writing for years. We'll go to the I've audience later. She's a doll. She's a little sweetie. She's a charmer. Um, let's talk about your rooms. Uh, tell us, Doug, you're, you've been in a number of different writers' rooms. Yeah. Uh, is there one that you can point to as a typical writers' room? No. As a matter of fact, Good. I can't. Um, and, and I'm, and I'm kind of glad I can't. They're all dysfunctional families, and they're all dysfunctional in their own way. You know, this one, oh, mommy and daddy don't like each other. This one, mommy just drinks. You know, it's they're all, <laughs> they're all completely different. Um, uh, what was the the Zucker Brothers movie where uh, Top Secret, where the guy is getting there's a uh, the, there's a secret agent, he's being beaten by by Nazis, and and he, and he pa beaten so badly that he passes out, and he has this dream that he's back in school, and then he wakes up and he sees the Nazis beating him, and he goes, oh thank God, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and so there are some rooms that um, that will replicate junior high in the worst possible way, and there's also kind of this like. Uh, festering thing around the room where, where it's like the room itself takes on a certain um, over time it's like the walls will get smaller the people you know whatever their their characteristics are like Dick Tracy villains all physically manifest their bad karma <laughs> um, you know it's like that sandwich has been there since September move it move that sandwich um, they're all different 
And I, I just to go back to the the earlier, like we're kind of half kidding about like like being nice or no more fucking around or whatever. Um, I do think one of the benefits of age is that you kind of you you do pick your battles and you do kind of let things. I, I would I'm far from zen. Uh, but you do kind of let things flow a little bit more and, and let bad ideas kind of wash themselves away as opposed to going, you absolutely can't do that right off the bat. Um, some shows, yeah, some are junior high. Some are, <laughs> uh, I have a theory that the people who stay late don't want to go home. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you can do Buffy was a great show, really well written. Jane Espenson was on it. She never wore pants, but outside of that, uh, that was a rule. Though, yeah, actually. no, that was the rule. You yeah. couldn't wear pants. Uh, horny crowd, but um, uh, you know, we worked really hard on that show, and we left at six because we were like, we've had the ideas we're going to have today, and you didn't have to prove that you loved the show to death because. We loved the show to death. There wasn't even a question. Some shows, you know, I worked on a procedural for a couple of years where it was like, you better prove that you love this show to death because deep down we know you don't, you know. So, I was going to so, ask specifically, what yeah. is the, we've heard a lot about Buffy because we've had uh, Fury here and Druzy and a couple sure. of the guys, but how was that room, which you guys all clearly did love, different from a procedural type show like CSI or, or even Pushing Daisies, which was sort of procedural? Um, hmm. Well, Pushing Daisies was, yeah, um, I'm so sorry that the phrase, like, on acid is a cliche, because it was like, it's a procedural, but like, whoa, right. whoa, you're doing rewrites on stuff we shot and aired, what are you doing? <laughs> um, yeah, Buffy was unique in that we, it never felt like a job, it never felt like a writing staff, it, it, it's... You know, we would say that like write, having written for Buffy is like saying I graduated from Hogwarts. You know, it's um, it it was it whatever you would imagine in your greatest nerd fantasy that it was, it was. You know, we would do things like like just here, just to crack each other up, and then someone would go, "We can actually put that on the air here," and and often would. So there was a great amount of passion, and I would say that, you know. Over time, we kind of knew towards the end, we like, like, oh, junior high is going to end at some point. And it, it, it was very, very sad. There was just tremendous passion and love for the show uh, and great craftsmanship behind it all. So really, you know, uh, that was unique. That'll, we'll, we'll never have that again. But it goes back to when you're talking about those moments uh, of becoming a writer, you know, I remember writing a play in the New York City Public Library when I was 24 years mm-hmm. old. That was performed. It wasn't. It was never even performed. It was performed for an audience smaller than this, and it was just the four-page monologue at the beginning. But I remember when I wrote it, everything changed. And again, I, I apologize for the cliche, but there's no word to describe that that thing. You, know, you guys are talking about a script, but when it's a, even a fragment of like what writing can be, and like something's happening, it's like lightning. It's the greatest thing, and. I think what we take away from that room is, and it's so great to hear you guys talk about this, this same thing, is that that's what you're looking for. You know, it's like that room is done, that show is over with, but the idea of that moment, whether it's a fragment or if you're like great an entire hour of television, or if you're like amazingly great, like an entire 
12 episodes or an entire season or an entire series, whatever it is, that moment when you're all like, this is the thing we want to see. Mm-hmm. Um, you just live for it. <clears throat> so you're always, you know, like this vampire now, like looking around, like how do you weed through this other stuff and get to that thing that, that, but that don't thing. Don't you think that that show, that show and that group of writers is in the genre, you know, in the genre world, an anomaly. You know, I mean, I think mm-hmm. that, that I, like I'm a big football fan and they always like talk about the coaching trees. They always talk about like, you know, Bill Walsh was a coach of the 49ers back in the 80s when they won Super Bowls and then all the assistant coaches that came out of from, from Bill Walsh then went on and how many Super Bowls did the assistant coaches win? And, you know, genre shows, unlike procedurals, most of them do not last. They last a right. couple seasons. And which is why when you're staffing and looking at people, most <clears throat> of the upper level people that you look to staff, regardless of what kind of show you're writing, are genre are not genre writers, they're procedural writers. Right. They're guys from CSI, they're law and order, they're whatever it is, because those shows have been around long enough where people have been able to, to work and, and build up a resume. Jane is always fascinating because she's like a gypsy who's gone from show to show. She's been on every show, you know, every genre show there is. And the Buffy tree, there's two trees. There's the Buffy tree and the Lost Tree. Right. The Buffy tree has borne out a lot of talented motherfuckers were in that room right. and then we're on Angel and then we're and now I mean all the way down to Steve Denight off doing you know Spartacus right. or whatever right. like there's a a big big pyramid right. the, of people that have gone on in that genealogy because it's one they were incredibly talented that room was obviously a very special place the show was you know the show was awesome and the show was on the air for a number of years where people could get some skills figure out their voices do some things in an, in an environment where they were free to actually write and they wrote well and there are very few genre shows like that, where the people who come out of it had enough experience to go do their own thing. Mm-hmm. And so you get these kind of genre gypsies that bounce around. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm, I'm curious to see what's going to happen on Lost, because Liz Sarnoff now has a show. Yeah. Eddie and Adam now have a show. Mm-hmm. Like, and you, you're now seeing this other thing happen, and you'll find out. What was going on in that room? Well, and a lot of them also said, well, I guess I have to be an adult now and go work on a procedural for a few years or get that experience or, like, at least build the resume in that way. And, you know, not for nothing because you feel like after Hogwarts, maybe college? I don't know. Yeah, college, yeah. grad school. Yeah. Grad yeah. school or paying off the student loans. Yeah. yeah. But, but obviously, it was. A, I mean, that thing was such lightning in a bottle. There's a reason everyone deifies it and talks about it these years later on panels. I mean, and wants to. Like, I'm still like, tell me more. <laughs> um, the, the good news is, uh, I mean, you know, the, the writer's room is probably the mo- ro- most romantic part of the job. Uh, when you fantasize about why you want to be a writer, that's probably the most like what you imagine. Because you get to sit in a room locked in for three to twelve hours a day, depending on whether the person you're working for likes their family, um, <laughs> with the, the most talented people that you know, uh, uh, you know, Darwinian writing allows. Like these people got the jobs and get paid a lot for a reason, uh, and you get to sit with them and it's fun and you make each other laugh and you put in the scripts and uh, you, you know, there's a certain amount of natural adversity, budgets, time constraints, network and studios petty grievances uh, that you put up with, but it all sort of, these. this becomes your support group. These become the people who are your, uh, you know, your team. You know, the term trenches gets thrown around a lot, but like there's a reason when you have a show picked up, the first thing you do is call the people you know you trust and you know how to trust them because you know their strengths and weaknesses and you, you know, you know, you know Thursday nights they have to leave because that's their couple's therapy and you really want that marriage to work. And, you know, and it just, uh, it, it, it is it's a different sort of friend and the saddest thing in the world is when a show ends naturally or unnatural deaths um, 
and you realize I'm not going to have lunch with this person every day anymore, you know, yeah. and like we will say, oh, as soon as I get a show, hire you. And they're like, oh, you're on a fucking deal over there. I can't hire you. And then you're like, I just want to have lunch with Doris Egan again. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, yeah. It's, can it's can you speak to, because uh, you've run your own show and you're about to run your own show, right? Uh, can you speak to things that you maybe learned early on in the room that you, you took to these? Uh, sure. I've, I've worked uh, almost exclusively with great, great showrunners. I mean, you know, from, from my first jobs on, Rob Thomas, Darren Starr, Michael Patrick King, like these people I just, you know, baby ducked after and like quacked when they quacked, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Um, I've worked for some people who run messy shows and, and uh, Greg Berlani runs one of the best shows, you know, all like 17 of them. Uh, uh, and, you know, you when you get a chance to run your own show, you think, how do I want to do this? And I recommend when you get that chance, uh, take five minutes and think about it as opposed to pilots go to series so amazingly fast, you don't have time to think about it, uh, which is why my, my if I have a patch this year, it's pray for mid-season. Uh, yeah, I agree. And, and my prayers were answered. Yeah, everyone's always like, oh, mid-season, that stinks. You're like, no, you don't understand. I have time to think about this now. Um, because when you go straight into fall, I mean, you're just you're building on sand and you never develop a foundation. But if you take five seconds to think about like, all right, what did I really appreciate? Uh, I appreciate when I had a chance to think about things uh, or to, to, when I felt I had a voice no matter what my level was. I appreciated feeling like I produced my episode even when I was a baby baby writer. Um, what are the things I hated? I hated when the room had to agree on things. Okay, so I came in the first day and I'm like, so guess what? When I leave you with the task of like get from scene A to scene B, don't when I come back, don't tell me the one way. Tell me three ways. Or you know, if you happen to agree on one way, that's great. Um, uh, but uh, Greg Berlani, I stole this from him. He calls it the Chinese menu approach. It's like, you know, I need, I need certain, you know, sometimes you're like, I want a story that's sort of in this vein, uh, and you want everyone to feel like they're heard. So, um, and you just don't want because if the room feels like it has to agree, it can take twelve hours of them arguing over the tiniest little detail, and it's really just the most inexhaustible person wins uh, every time. And just sometimes you're like, fine. Uh, yeah. uh, so I would just say, don't agree. Put all three up. And then when I come in, I'm like, you can even tell me what your favorite, you know, um, uh, and just really thinking through, like, what are the things I admired? Uh, I try to be more patient as a showrunner than I probably am. Uh, you know, really like when, when you want to interrupt someone because you're already not into their idea, you're just like, just hear it out. Maybe there's something at the end or maybe there's a way to spin this. Um, because I, the showrunners I work for are a lot more patient than I am naturally. Um, uh, and then oh, the other thing there's a value of as much as I love the room uh, carving people out and uh, doing the refining work separately I think uh, mm-hmm. there is a diminishing return like after 7 o'clock there are no good ideas there's no reason to stay late unless people hate their families which is just unfortunate um, uh, but uh, it, sometimes you just have to take the person who's writing that episode and like one other person who you think is good sounding board and just go off to another office let the room keep doing something else and like make the key decisions because uh, sometimes it does have to be filtered through one personality I think or fewer uh, Alexa I'm very curious about honestly every single room that you've been in uh, I've uh, been in so many different ones yeah. I feel like I've been able to pull from what I valued from each of them and each show is totally unique too in terms of how a room will work and can we get a little specific with you can we yeah. let, let's walk through like what was the friends room like because we haven't talked very much about comedy in general my here. pal Jeff Greenstein is here um, and we were there together first season so he can speak to it too um, it was extraordinary I mean for me what was so um, some I feel like I've had a blessed path in that I've been on a lot of shows that I felt like 
I don't care if America watches this. I'm doing something I feel great about. Like, even if it goes down and I get hit by a bus today, it was a good day. And then I've been on some that were already up and good when I came on, and that certainly was easier than the other. But I feel like the Friends Room was like, we, you know, and I had, I would say too that the rooms that I was in previous to the Friends Room, I liked the staff a lot, but I felt like in some cases, you, I couldn't, there's some rooms where you can disagree with the showrunner and there's some rooms where you can't Mm -hmm. and the rooms that work best are the ones where the showrunners are comfortable enough to really hear people who have differing ideas and that was very true at friends it was totally democratic you know and there wasn't a hierarchical sometimes there is a hierarchy in terms of people's positions and status and titles and some some people sort of you know, ascribe to that. And again, I would say the best rooms are the ones where it's your passion that's driving. And so, no, it was, um, it was, we stayed really late though. And maybe cause we didn't have families and also cause it was well, so comedy's democratic. Different. Comedy's, comedy's different. Is different because of the multi-camera thing. You're not getting back to the room to even decide what you want to do till late in the day. So, um, but it was, um, it was that same thing you're talking about too, which is we would be like, well, here's, you know, this is a completely insane idea. Um, I remember I, at one point I pitched, which they couldn't, we couldn't do the season I pitched it, but I pitched that um, I'd heard that David Naughton said he was on, said he was circumcised for um, American Werewolf, but he wasn't. And so they got to shooting and he was not circumcised and it was a big issue. So I was like, what if Joey, what do we do the other way? So Joey has to be uncircumcised for a role, but he is. So then like, he has to like find ways to make a foreskin, and, and, and we were like, we were like, we can't do that. And but it was how early on did you pitch them? I think second season, mm-hmm. maybe. When and did they actually make that? I think like fourth or fifth. That's you great. Did it? Yeah. Keep um, pitching it. That's the other thing. Always keep pitching. But I was thrilled. I was so happy. Yeah. yeah. No, no, I was thrilled that it actually. But it was that feeling of like, can we really do that? Um, and uh, and so often the, the answer was yes, or at least let's try. We're all agreed to try, you know. And um, and then you know the drama rooms are different. John Wells does a combination of story breaking as a group and kind of more sort of solitary work as you know as you write your own script, which is a good system. Like I think when you're not doing multicam, it's nice to actually only use the room for sort of strategic amounts of time, as opposed to we just live here and I just saw your beard grow, which is what I always. <laughs> felt like I, I've been here so long I literally just saw everybody's beards grow so uh, Wells was running uh, West Wing yeah I was there the, right the first season uh, did the staff have a lot of input in that time in the room into yeah, forming yeah. This, the arcs and he does some good stuff too that I really learned from which is he does a screening at the end of every season if you're lucky enough to have a season of the previous episodes from the last season with the entire staff and you get to be completely frank about what you liked and what you didn't like and it's like again the sort of constant sort of checks and balances about what do we want to change and what actors can do certain things that we thought they couldn't and stuff like that so that was valuable yeah that's amazing uh, and then take us to Tara how did did you do things there? How did I you tried to things? do both. I tried to do, I mean, we didn't really have, we had a really, really small room initially and um, we had kind of, I sort of, we sort of broken the seat the whole season before we even were picked up. That's happening more and more now. Like the HBO thing I just did, which was technically three episodes and a Bible, we had to break 13 episodes and turn in five page outlines for each episode. So this is the trend. Like, um, and uh, so I think that's happening 
getting more and more. I mean, I remember when Friends was picked up, it was like, here's a, one piece of paper with five ideas for episodes. Like, yeah. never happened now. So, but in some ways, it's good. It's not good because of the free work and stuff, but it's good to know sort of what the legs of the show are and feel confident going into I would imagine it's sort of fun to, you know, you get the ideal show in your head for a little while, too. Yeah. You get to live in that mm. world, and yeah. especially if you love Breaking Story, yeah. uh, which not all writers do, but how did you feel about that? In fact? Oh, no, I was thrilled because it gives you the... I'm somebody who go, comes from fear first, so <laughs> I'm just happy. I actually type scripts on old scripts to remind myself that I've written them before, <laughs> literally. Like, if I, the last time I do... Next time I do a single camera half hour, I'll take the last show I worked on and use that one on top of it because the blank page is so the idea that you come into it you're a mess you're so (laughs) successful (laughs) um yeah. So you, you should have been here the past see, couple months. You, yeah, I'm stunned. No, he, he, By the way, you will never feel like you made it. This is we should just get it. The only thing that's good is like when your parents get to see your name on something, you'll never feel like you made it no matter what. Is that fair? Yeah, if you're a fear-based individual such as myself. <laughs> this has been recurring yeah. uh, since we started he's much these panels. Well, you're much more like Yeah, but my parents hated me just as much after they saw my name on the screen. So <laughs> <laughs> the neglect was very consistent. So, um, yeah. But yeah, no. I, but we do actually. That's uh, and I, I was talking to uh, a friend who uh, is working on a show. Got a show. Pick, Jonah Nolan got a show picked up, and he said that he and his wife have the same conversation that we have. And maybe it's a gender thing, or maybe it's just a temperamental thing, or whatever. Where I'm like. I'll just take like paintballs and just like throw them and go like, wow, look at the splat that made. Let's go there, you know. And she's like, okay, that's on the second story of the house. In order to get there, we're gonna have to build stairs, and the stairs need to be about this big. And I think there should be paisley on the first step. I'm like, what are you doing? Why are you doing the first step? And the the construction that Alexa will do, she's gonna we're gonna get home. She's gonna you made me sound crazy. Thank you. <laughs> I think I've already done that. <laughs> but she'll construct things in in this uh, incredibly well-constructed way. She'll like go, okay, this has to be built this way and you have to get there. And my brain just doesn't work that way. I don't, I don't want to know how I'm going to get there. I want to know where I'm going to go. You know, it's like, well, they're going to fight at the end. It's going to be awesome. And (laughs) how you kind of get there. Now there's actually uh, the, the downside of that is the notes that I got 20 years ago are the notes that I get now. You know, it's, it's almost always the same motivation is almost always missing. It, like, like, okay, that's great that they're fighting. Why are they fighting at the end? And it's like, oh, you should have built the stairs at the beginning. Um, but it is amazing the, the kind of approach to things because I do just kind of see the whole picture, but it's very fuzzy. And invariably, when I get notes back, they're saying, okay, fill in these spaces, build to these things in a way that makes sense. And as time goes on, I'm getting better at going, oh, you know what, that, that I should do that. That's right. That's what you got to apply yourself yeah, to. Yeah, but I would also say that I've been told, like when I was at Once and Again, one of the writers said, you should write lying down. Because it's very, it's too rational and plotty and like you need more like, you know, in, you know, sort of irrational instinct in your, in your thing. Eh, so, overrated. Yeah. <laughs> I loved Once and Again, by the way, but come on. <laughs> uh, I think we have, we'll take some questions from uh, the audience now. If you guys have questions, and I, I think we're uh, uh, a nice uh, size group so I can actually walk over to you with the microphones. Here's the thing that I heard recently about Q&As. Uh, questions 
first of all, uh, should be fairly general. If you want to get specific, that's fine. But you know, we have four tremendous writers up here, and they should all be able to respond to your questions. Um, questions begin with W's, not with I's. <laughs> Now, who has a question? You, you in the back, I'm coming for you. Come over here. That should be at the gates at Comic-Con. Yeah. I, I heard it recently. It was the best advice I've heard. Hilarious. Uh, you all just talked about uh, writers' rooms and how they can grow or shrink or get kind of weird. Uh, are there certain ways to keep the writers' room fresh? Or um, like, what characteristics of a writers' room would you say help creative development? Food. It could also be, you know, the the makeup of a room. Who who do you need in there? Wait, wait, no, go back to food though. This is important. Oh, no, I oh, actually food, food, yeah. cheese actually is an incredibly important. <laughs> I mean, we lived on cheese plates at Sarah Connor, and I did. And um, but you know, it, it's interesting. I mean, you, it's a we worked ten to seven at Sarah Connor every day. It was a very serialized show. It was very room intensive. The other showrunner, John Worth, believed in that, and I kind of became into that. And it was a show that really needed – we spent a lot of time talking about time travel, uh, which I hope to never, ever do again. <laughs> Big mistake. Big mistake. Never we do went down that rabbit hole. Never put never time travel time in your series. That, that is – you could all just go home with that one. Don't put time travel in your series. Put it in a movie. Put it in do a movie. Put Don't put it in a series. You know what, but I, we joke about food, but it actually, uh, there's something about a writer's room. You know, you have to keep, I mean, there's a lot of caffeine, and it, we used to all eat together. I mean, we were a freaky like group. We always ate together every single day. Um, we rarely, unless someone had an errand or whatever, they run out lunch, but we would order in lunch almost every day. In the middle of the second season, Warner Brothers, probably because they hated Josh 1.0, they um, told us we were spending too much money on lunch and we would only be allowed to eat lunch, I think, once a week on their dime and we had to spend our own money at the cafeterias or whatever it was. And so people started going and spreading out. And it fucked our room up. Yeah. Like, it was a totally different vibe. Like, when we would stay in, we would all sit there, we would stay in, we would get all jokey shit out, whatever it was that we needed to get out in that hour, we would get out, and we would often talk about the show. Whatever it was, we would kind of still work. And when they made us go eat by ourselves, essentially, it's fucked our room up. And you can't explain that to head of production. Like, I know it sounds like you want to save $80 a week, but (laughs) But actually, it's costing you the success of the show because of snacks or (laughs) food. It was really, it's, it's, you know, so I, I, yeah, snacks is what I believe. meals. Uh, Low glycemic index snacks, this is important because the shopping is usually done by someone in their early 20s, and they're like, I have $250 to buy snacks, Doritos! And I always have the, the sit down with the person, I'm going like, if you don't bring back a bushel of apples, these 38-year-old proto-diabetic fuckers are going to drop dead at three <laughs> And I remember, like, on, on Heroes, this great PA DJ, if you're out there listening to podcast, uh, I just say, you keep buying enough apples to fill the bowl we have. Get a bigger bowl. <laughs> because they come with the M&Ms and the Hershey Kisses, yeah. and at 3.30... Yeah. And I'm like, it's we gotta that, go tell... Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's when we would get frozen yogurt. Yeah. That was the four o'clock. Low glycemic index. I'm also a big believer in taking breaks. I mean, like, it's very unpopular. And it's, especially if you're not the show owner, let's take a break. It's like, you know, let's stop paying you. Um, but, um, but the best idea is there, there is this moment, and it's impossible to define, and it's probably different for everybody. And, like, if I can speak for you, like, on Friends, David Crane was, um, as I understand it, a machine. Nicest guy in the world. No more fucking around. But, you know, sweet, sweet guy. But a machine. Just never stopped. I'm not built like that, you know, and everyone's built differently. And I sometimes, 
you know, it's like there was one time on Pushing Daisies we couldn't crack this story. They're incredibly complicated with incredibly complicated mythology. And my car, my Prius was in the shop. So for fun, for two days, I was like, I'm going to rent a convertible. You know, I'm going to be a dick for two days. <laughs> and I was. And I, um, uh, we, I said, let's get in the convertible. And we like drove around Burbank and we like, and we cracked the story. You know, and we came back. It's like, go to the comic book store, get more snacks, talk about what movies you want to see. It'll come to you. You know, the, the cliche of like, oh, I have my best ideas in the shower or when I'm driving. It's like, there's something to that. But again, where it gets tricky is you are being paid. There's no shower in the room. And um, everyone's level is different. Some people, procedural, I was on CSI for two years where this kind of uh, Narain Shankar, who's a wonderful guy and a, an extraordinary writer, was literally an engineer before he was a writer. And that, I think I can say that's the way his brain worked in many ways. He's like, I'm going to sit here and figure this out, and I'm not going to leave until I do. And he always would, and it was always extraordinary. But it was very different from the way. So food and... <laughs> Breaks, well, true, food not forgetting the human, the human side of it, because yeah. everyone wants, you know... Writers feel like, oh, you can write anywhere, you can do anything. No, it's it's not, uh, you know, bricklaying where you can put a certain amount of bricks down in a certain amount of time. There is that weirdness to it, and, and sometimes, you know, you have to remember your body and feed it or give it a break or take and, it to the comic store. Fire all the assholes. <laughs> oh, good one. And fire the assholes. And I will say that having never had to fire the assholes, we had a wonderful room of just dorky losers in Sarah Connor. I mean, they are just, they were brains on sticks. I mean, they were just, you know, I mean, if, if you've met any of them, they're just, you know, they're just crazy little Asperger people. And it was great, you know, and, but they were just sharp, but they were, everyone was happy to be there and it was a joy and we did not have a single asshole. But I, I could, and I thought about some of the people who I actually tried to hire who I didn't get on the show because mm -hmm. they went on, on some other show. Um, and I then got to know them better than just the two-hour coffee that I'd had with them before. And they turned out to be assholes. Yeah. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, if I had to put that person on the show, this one person out of eight people, this room would have been entirely different. Mm -hmm. Can, can and, you define what makes person an asshole in a room? Well, again. I mean, other than being like the general asshole, like. Well, I think not being able to move off of your ideas, you know, just not being able to play well with others, talking over people, not yeah. listening. I mean, the same things that make you an asshole in kindergarten. I mean, it's... Right. Tell me about hyperbole pitching. Oh, well, this, that was just... We just did that... It's not a particular person, but it's a thing. It's a... It's a well, we, we would talk about that there's a certain kind of writer that sometimes will hyperbo pitch to shoot stuff down. So I don't know if I'm going to explain this well, though, now. Like, um, like, well, if he does that, then, like, the car will crash, and then, like, all the babies will be dead. And it's like, you just tried to kill my pitch. Like, I wasn't talking about killing babies. Like, I'm just abstract. I'm not really doing it right. But um, there's a certain temperament. That sort of is a shutdown, person yeah. who shuts things down, and that becomes really weary. You just get so tired of it if you're. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good ethos for the room, like the yes and rooms versus yeah. the or room or the but room. Yeah. Like yes and, like the, the improv rule of okay, you have something, let me build on it. And if you happen to disagree, make your have your better idea ready and say, I totally get what you're doing. I'm just going to explore a different thing just to say it, and then we can. You know, you have to maintain that courtesy and respect so that. No one feels shut down or wants to not talk anymore, and and, but, and let and let the person in charge be the goalie. Don't right. you be right. the goalie? I just assume too that 
I'm and and maybe it's just because I love writers, but I'm going to assume that everybody in that room that we can trust each other, that we have each other's backs, and that we're functioning as a, a unit. And so, the, what I would say is, I don't want to know that like somebody. I don't want to see somebody's Facebook pictures partying with actors in my show. Do you know what I mean? Like somebody who has an agenda that is not with all of us. Like it sort of works like, and that can be really divisive too. I, I, I actually made a mistake on my show and I let, and I didn't, as I just didn't think about it. I let people on my show get closer to actors than, and I didn't it just never, I mean, it was again, yeah. my first show, I didn't think about it. And it was like, some assistant who was like the same, who's 28 years old and a hipster and, you know, got, you know, started hanging out with one of the actors or whatever. And they'd be going, and it was like, dude, I, you're an assistant on the show. Like you're, you can't be talking to them about things. Like, and if that person has a problem on the show, like she can't be talking to you about it. And then you not talking to me about it because you're like, you can't, you know, it's, it's a very, I mean, it's a, they're all very complicated. I mean, coming down to where people sit in the room. I mean, there were people mm. that we, again, like kindergarten, there are people who you had, I had to move them to put them in different, not because they were asking, but again, because putting them next to each other, their energies were like too much. Like, you know, you sit over there on that side and you'll sit over here on this side next to me. You know? You will sit next to, no, that's, that's three Diet Cokes. That's plenty for you. You know? No, do you, maybe you should try some, some water for, for now and some low glycemic snacks. But you can't, you know, I mean, we split the room at one point in the second season. We had ten writers, and it was too many. At some, we split How'd you afford it. Four ten writers. Sorry, three I'll staff. Write, no, we had three staff writers and okay. one uh, a team. So I mean, that was, I mean, so it was it gobbled up right, quite quick. But it became too many voices, and so we split the room in two, and, it, and we were breaking two separate episodes simultaneously. And I would go back and forth between the two rooms. And we had our big room, and then we had the room we called the ugly room because it was <laughs> ugly and small. It was never meant to be a writers' room. We turned it into a little. It's not the room. people in it. It was <laughs> not the people in it. No, but they ended up two. We we have one co-EP to one, and one to the other, and it was then that you saw like the real differences because after about a week we one room we were we started nicknaming team get shit done and the other was team talk about shit <laughs> and you know team get shit done was in act four and team talk about shit had nothing on the board except question marks and ideas and things written up the side and you're like oh no you know and eventually team get shit done broke their episode and we had to take some get shit done and put it in talk about shit and somehow then it got shit done over there but it's like then you knew I'm never giving an episode to that KOP again to run that room because I'll we'll never get anything done you know I mean it's but great person great writer can't not a leader of men interesting yeah right here don't touch it don't touch it. Uh, hi. Um, my question is about uh, spec scripts. And uh, thank you for what you said about writing a script that is a course change. But as uh, you described with lock and key, it's possible to do your job too well. So I was wondering if you could each talk about that tightrope that you walk between trying to do something original, which a studio may say they want, and to give them something familiar enough, which is what they really want. That's a good question. Um I'm jumping in. Uh, you, first, Beck, it's got to be fantastic. You don't worry about giving them something that's familiar. In fact, give them something fresh, I, I think. Absolutely. There's no – don't anticipate the market or, you know, not at all for spec. A spec has to be something that takes your breath away and is has a voice. And so I think if you're even in the mindset of trying to project what someone might want, then that's a bad direction to go. Assuming you're, ta you're talking about – 
writing the script to get an agent to get your first job. I mean, ignore the studio and the network completely. Write the best, ballsiest, fearless thing that you can. And it, for me, I read scripts and I look for voice. Like, I look for, I don't even, I can teach you how to do X structure. Like, I, by the time you're a staff writer, I just want, I want to know that you, that you're a writer. I mean, that's what I'm just looking for. And I mean, the term I use all the time, it's like the best compliment I give people is she or he is a real writer. That's all. That's all I care about. I don't care what shows up. I don't care what it, I mean, I just, I just, you're a real writer. I want that person in the room. You know, we'll, you're 25. You'll figure out, you know, we'll, you'll figure it out. And do it in the first 10 pages. Yeah. Why? Because when you get these huge stacks of scripts, there is this asshole rule of like, oh, I'll just read the first 10 pages and you can tell. And I used to think, that's terrible. What if they save no, you If the first 10 pages are boring, you're done. It doesn't get better. Yeah. Um, and don't say, well, I've got this great ending. Put the ending in the beginning. And, <laughs> because you, you, what, you're trying to take someone's breath away. And uh, voice does that because it's so specific. And you see, like, someone has this clear cut fully formed personality on the page in life they might be a disaster um, and you're attracted to it and you're like I want that voice on my show to make my show better and sound like that because yeah act structure you know technique those things can be learned but uh, voice talent can't be so show off and absolutely don't take those notes of like well it might be to this or to do it show off with discipline <laughs> <laughs> I mean don't indulge yourself I mean it's yeah. a hard that, I mean look that's what makes writing hard be fearless, like indulge your imagination, but don't indulge your ego. Like how do you how do you get it on the page so it, you, someone reads it and goes, oh, fuck, but not like, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. Oh. And then it just like it starts to realize <laughs> yeah. it's just this big, you know, pony with a pink mohawk. <laughs> I've never said that line in my life. <laughs> <laughs> but I understood. Yeah. But everyone, yeah. Yeah. We, we went right there. Instant uh, there was someone, yeah. Love it. Um, it seems like uh, everybody who's run a show has, has actually come up the ladder except for Josh. So my question is actually more specific to Josh, even though you can't see me. Um, all right. Uh, I just wanted to know, was your strength of getting Sarah Connor, uh, Sarah Connor Chronicles, was that, had you written a couple of specs before? Was it just off your feature experience? And also if you could talk about them giving you a co-showrunner and how that process came about and that relationship and all that kind of stuff. Um, well, I mean, I I'd had a feature career, you know, I mean, for um, a number of years. And um, along the way, I would write a pilot usually every year. Um, so Sarah Connor was the seventh pilot that I'd written that I'd been paid to write, uh, the third that had been shot. Um, so I, I mean, I, you know, I had done that, but I'd never, been, I'd never been on a show before. And I keep saying, I mean, I say that, the, yeah, the first writers' room I was in was the one that I ran, which always sounds really asshole. It sounds worse, not as bad as that girl a few weeks ago who kept talking about how, you know, first she won an Emmy and then she got her agent. But uh, believe it or not, that's come up a few times since then. <laughs> a lot of people don't like that story. A lot of people don't like that story. I know. It was. It was. I was in the room and I was like, "Fucking." Uh, so I mean, I, I'd written a number of pilots and I'd shot a few and I'd worked with people who um, are very were very successful and I'd learned a lot from them. Um, I did not know how little I knew until you know, uh, well, until I actually did it. Um, Warner Brothers, when I got the pilot picked up, said you need to hire somebody. They said you should hire this one person. His name was John Worth. I said I don't want to hire that person because he's the person you're telling me to hire. Um, Josh 1.0. And um, so they like sent me on some blind dates with some other showrunners who were much worse. Um, like I didn't know that was the gig. Um, 
And eventually, after you know, ten hours of he and I having lunches and coffees and whatever, we, and and by the way, they had told him that I was crazy, uh, and that I didn't know what my show was, and that he was going to have to replace me. Mm-hmm. Um, and he went back to them and said, "Well, I don't know. He showed me a twenty-five page Bible. Uh, he knows exactly what a show is. He's got the whole first season plotted out, and he doesn't seem crazy at all." Um, and because he didn't want to take the job, and neither of us knew that the other person didn't want to work with the other person. Uh, and eventually, um, we convinced each other that we liked each other. Um, and so I learned. I mean, you know, he uh, became my mentor, really. And I think the way that it worked for us, which is rare, and John and I do, like, we go to the showrunner training thing and do the like shotgun marriage talk. Like, we're the like we're the platonic ideal of that relationship, and that's because of him, because he. You know, he's uh, a little older, he's done his thing, and he he was absolutely egoless about it. And he came in and said, I'm going to teach you everything I can teach you. I'm going to try to keep you from making mistakes, but creatively you're in charge of the show, and that's the way it is, and I'm here to support you. You're, you know, I'm the prime minister. You know, you're the president, mm-hmm. whatever the you know, politics of it was. And that's what we did, to his detriment, because... Josh 1.0 was a handful, as it turned out, and Warner Brothers kept coming to John saying, you've got to get him under control. He won't agree to make do the notes we're asking, whatever, and he kept saying, well, he's right and you're wrong, and I'm not going to get into that. And I think that that relationship that, I mean, I, everyone probably can speak to it, the show and our creator relationship is a relationship where the studio and the network, in, a, in the worst case, try to divide you. Because they believe, and, and the reality is, is like if the power isn't with the voice of the show, if it's not with the creator, it doesn't actually go to the showrunner. It goes back to the studio, because then no one knows what the show is. In a in a show like Sarah Connor, where it's um, where no one knew what the show is, um, on procedurals, it's a little easier. Once certainly once the show is going, people have an idea generally what the show was. That no one knew what Sarah Connor was except for about eight people, and so they couldn't get rid of me, despite their attempts. Um, I couldn't have done it without, I mean, you know, I couldn't have done it without him because I didn't know shit. I mean, and I think that, and I, it took me a little while to realize I didn't know anything, but uh, I now know how much I didn't know and how much I still don't know. Mm. But. That answers the question, right? Um, yeah, I, I think there's a, we have time for one or two more. Yeah. Who were your mentors and how did you go about getting them? <laughs> Mine was forced upon me, <laughs> but it worked out. It worked, it worked out. out. That's great. Um, I would go back even before uh, being in Hollywood. Uh, I, I grew up in Great Neck, Long Island, and there was a community center called Levels. You know, which sounds very groovy in seventies because uh, it was very groovy, and it was the seventies. And um, but there was a guy named Ed Amrine who has since passed away, um, and. He was kind of the greatest guy in the world. And he did something that I never forgot, which was uh, a friend of mine and I said, we're going to do a production of The Odd Couple. You could do plays there. We said, what's the funniest play we know? And let's do The Odd Couple. So my friend Rob was going to produce it, and I would direct it. And was, I'd never directed anything before. And I went to Ed, who was you know an old, old man. He was like 34, 35 years <laughs> old. And I said... We want to do a production of The Odd Couple, fully expecting him to act the way a grown-up does, which is, that's great. And he didn't say that. He said, all right, what's your schedule? This is our calendar. Who are you going to cast in it? How much money do you have for this thing anyway? He just started busting my balls on it. And I realized instantly that he was treating me with the absolute respect of, of reality. He didn't say good for you. 
he, he said, how are you going to accomplish this? And I was instantly forced to answer all of these questions. And it kind of relieved you of all these uh, uh, burdens and kind of gave you all these responsibilities. And you kind of realized that how freeing responsibility can be. You know, when you talk about you're the only one who knows what the show is, like that that's kind of horrifying, but at the same time, it's kind of great. You know, you're the guy who knows what the show is. So you kind of, you have to make your own decisions and stuff like that. And I never really forgot that. And, you know, when you talk about like the, the spark that you're looking for creatively in terms of the people you want to work with, you want to work with people who kind of, um, are, are kind of ahead of you in terms of what you could be or what you want to be and that you don't have to convince. So he was he as much more than anyone in the industry. Um, he was a guy who kind of made this, this, this radical turn was made in that moment. Anyone else? Well, I would say I, I think seeking out mentors is an essential piece to all of this. And they may not even be mentors that actually take you on or are consistent in your life. But, like, I choose work by where I can learn and who I want to learn from. And that's that's a huge part of why I think I've been enjoyed my career because it's literally like sometimes it's not even what's the show with the best time slot. It's like, where is somebody interesting that I can learn from? And so I think it's a big piece. That's great. Michael. Uh, I, I don't have anything terribly insightful. Um, you know, <laughs> I guess there's a distinction between mentor being like, what's the definition? Like the person who tells you you're an idiot when you're willing to listen or there's something there's an expression there somewhere um versus uh when you get hit up for people who like i think they'll give me a job and you know uh i think everyone gets hit up all the time like can you tell you know once a month uh i have a nephew can you talk to them about like what is to be screener and i always take the call it's like it's fun you know because you mm. get to sort of say you can like there are jobs it might as well be you and and that's very very true um i i was always just very fortunate that like i you know, randomly, literally, it was like my best friend from elementary school's brother's sister-in-law's brother-in-law or something. It was like one more weird remove. And I was just out of college and I like asked, can I get scripts for your show, Third Rock from the Sun? And he sent me a bunch of them and, and I got an envelope with them in them and I like studied them and wrote a spec and sent it back to him. And like, the guy didn't know me from, you know, and he read it and gave me some notes and um, it was incredibly helpful. And I, I don't know, I always try to since I assume, like, you know, time travel shows, God doesn't work in linear ways, I try to earn someone having done that by not being an asshole now when someone asks me to do things. Um, uh, the other thing is, you know, be be polite but uh, aggressive when you, like, aggressive in the nice way when, when you there's someone you want to learn from. Like, send them an email. Tell them I'm really a fan of the thing you did, did and uh, I admire, you know, would you mind uh, if I asked you a few questions? If you don't have time for coffee, maybe a phone call. Like, just what's the way, given their time and their schedule? Um, people don't people don't mind. People are always, you know, writers, anything to not do their work, really. <laughs> but, but, uh, but also, and I, I mean, if you if you're gonna if someone's gonna read your script and it, some people will and some people won't. Mm -hmm. My wife used to be a lawyer at the Writers Guild. She won't let me read people's scripts. <laughs> She's just like, nope, you're gonna get sued. Nope, you're gonna get sued. She just won't. And it's it's you know, I, and I it doesn't mean that I don't I haven't, but you know, it's it's. But where where young writers can go wrong is being if you're gonna ask for people's notes, be prepared to get them, and you don't have to do what they say. 
but don't argue with them for two hours about the no. And like, and mm. and I, I I used to have a girlfriend whose sister and brother-in-law were these poet. One was a poet, one was a novelist, and they were married, and they. Um, would give each other notes and they were very incredibly anal and focused and it was like they had a, they had a baby so one of them would work from 11 to 2 and then one of them would work from 2 to 5 and they would switch off the office they were really focused and so they would share work and they had a deal which was they would whenever they shared work they would say either I want A critic or I want B critic A critic was attaboy B critic was not and you had to decide and you had to decide before you handed it over which one you wanted to hear from and they would literally have these rules about about it and I think that you know, you can't, you're going to get notes. We all get, I mean, we get more notes than you do, you know, and, and part of the job and part of the, maybe one of the hardest parts of the job once you have the job is how do you take notes? How do you take them? How do you take them graciously? How do you decide what to do? How do you decide, you know, what not to do? How do you maintain a voice, but yet be um, respectful and collaborative? I mean, it's, and there's a thousand ways to do it and a thousand ways to do it wrong, but you know, if you're going to ask people for their time and they're going to give it to you, you know. If you're just looking for someone to say this is fantastic, just tell them. Like, just tell them. I actually say, when do you want you want me to read this? Like, because you want me to just say it's great and give it to my agent, or are you looking for feedback? And you know, hmm. usually people are pretty honest. Uh, my last question is uh, what is usually our last question? Um, are you guys watching TV? Is there anything you love? What can't you miss? Do you even have time to watch TV? Yeah, you do. <laughs> I watch. I watch. Josh is watching. I got no job. I watch. I watch. What do you love? Well, I love the same shows that everybody loves. You know, I love Breaking Bad. You know, and um, Breaking Bad I think is the best show on television, and um, because it's the only show on television where I actually fear for the characters' souls. <laughs> like I watch the show wow. and I think. Oh my God! Don't do that. And I mean, and it's a show, and and I think that it's challenging. And you know, when you write genre shows. One of the hardest things to do is get people to fear for the characters. You can get people to, I mean, caring for the characters is really hard, but putting characters in jeopardy in some way week to week is really hard because they go, he's not going to die. You know, nothing bad is going to happen. Well, Breaking Bad, you have a character who is in life-threatening situations, and not only am I scared for him occasionally, they may actually off him, you know, because I don't know, who knows how long that show will go, but I watch him every week, and I find myself sucked into his decision-making and his morality, and then I take a step back and go, wait, fuck, that was a horrible thing to do, but I completely would have done the exact same thing, and I really, I really worry for them, and I think so. Anyway, I love Breaking Bad, and I and uh, and I've also watched like 15 pilots, and his pilot is awesome. Thank you. But we don't know when it's on yet, right? Could be mid-season. Uh, spring, they say. Oh, I can't wait that long. Uh, well, anyway, uh, please give a round of applause. First of all, for 826LA. Go to 826LA.org to find out more about the organization. Thanks to everyone at Nerdist Industries here at Meltdown Comics. So a round of applause for them, please. And of course, to my great guests, Douglas Petrie, Alexa Young, Josh Friedman, and Michael Green. Thank you, guys. Now leaving Nerdist.com.